Hi everybody, welcome back to Opera Off Stage. I'm Jesse. And I'm Michelle. And happy Pride. We are coming in right on the edge. <laughs> I know, we're live really living life on the edge. <laughs> Absolutely. But it, this was actually a really exciting Pride for me because I actually got to go to like Nashville Pride, which is the first Pride Festival I've had the time to go to. Normally, I forget what weekend they're supposed to be. <laughs> and so like it'll happen and I'll be like, oh, shoot. Um, but it was really, really fun if like swelteringly hot because it is Nashville in the summer. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I got a sweet, sweet corporate pride shirt. I have a, a Jack Daniel shirt that has all the bottles in like a rainbow pattern. And I'm normally like anti-corporate pride, but it is a pretty sick shirt. Nice. Well, it also fits the bartender vibe. So that's pretty fun. Oh, uh, it's pretty great. I've been wearing it a lot to the bar. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I also I, I also cut off all of my hair this month. So <laughs> so it's very I know. fitting. Jessie FaceTimed me the other day and she was like casual. Yeah, I chopped all my hair off. Well, give us give us the backstory. What what because you were so in love with your wolf cut. What happened? I did love my wolf cut, and I had like the long shag hair. Yeah, which is what my hairdresser, who who is not on TikTok, was like. It's just a shag haircut. You don't have to call it a wolf cut. Oh my I God. love her. <laughs> I have her run me through the real names for things all the time. But uh, I have a thing where basically two years into growing out my hair, and it has been about two years. I start to feel like like a default video game character, oh my and gosh. <laughs> it drives me insane. Like I feel like a default sim, and so I have to cut off my hair so I feel like a person again. Nice. <laughs> well, it looks men- cute as it is now. I was just yeah. surprised because you were so in love with the with the shag. She was in her shag era. Um. Yeah. Well, we're we're bouncing back at the end of June to deliver our pride episode. We always have a lot of fun with this. Um, episode and it's also just like a really good reason to like deep dive into some really established composers that maybe aren't like you know our top five (laughs) that are highlighted all the time so it's fun to to do this kind of research and uh, next week we'll be releasing an opera news episode kind of covering things that happened in May and June kind of honestly just remembering some of the crazy things that have also happened in the last couple months and we also have some pretty awesome big personal news to reveal in that announcement as well so it's it'll be really fun nuts it's nuts. um and i hope you guys all enjoyed the 100th episode i that may be actually one of my favorite episodes i've ever gotten to edit i don't think i've ever laughed so hard at the many many <laughs> things michelle and i have been through together and like i'm so glad we ended up pulling all the clips of the nonsense we've done but if you haven't checked that episode out please go back if for nothing else to understand why Michelle says to me, don't talk to me about gazpacho. <laughs> There's so many crazy quotes that you can pull out of like our freaking discography at this point. But yeah, it's, it's oh, a yeah. really fun episode. It's it's if you're a fan of the podcast, then you will really enjoy it. So the best thing about the Pride episode is definitely finding out about people who are very well established in music who you just don't really learn about in music school. And so my first one up is actually um, a man named Billy Strayhorn, which, first of all, what a killer musician name. That is a really good one. Right? So Billy Strayhorn, born uh, November 1915 in Ohio. We won't hold that against him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he was uh, an American jazz composer, pianist, lyricist, and arranger. And he is most known for collaborating with Duke Ellington for almost three decades. Like. And here's the thing, it's crazy, because I know Duke Ellington, obviously. I actually did some research about jazz ambassadors during the time of the Cold War. 
And mm-hmm. I don't remember reading about Billy Strayhorn, which is crazy because Duke Ellington refers to Billy Strayhorn. This is a, a literal quote. He says, Billy Strayhorn was my right arm, my left arm, all the eyes in the back of my head, my brain waves in his head and his in mine. Oh, wow. So he considers Billy Strayhorn as an arranger, the person who brought his thoughts to life. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty, that's high praise. That's, that's crazy. And it's yeah. crazy that he's not always in the same sentence for three decades of work, which would be considered during the time of like some of Duke Ellington's most important musical pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of his c- compositions include Taking the A-Train, Chelsea Bridge, A Flower is a Lovesome Thing, and Lush Life. Wow. Right? Isn't that nuts? Okay. And actually, yeah. Lush Life uh, comes from a piece that he wrote while he was still in his teens. Okay. It's a, it's a renamed piece from literally high school, which is mm-hmm. offensive to me. <laughs> the one thing in common with both of the people I've chosen to talk about today is like they started their professional careers in their teens, which is... Um, a personal affront. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no. So he, he like many people, said that his uh, grandmother was a, like, a prime influence on his life. Um, he would start playing the piano, and he learned from her she would play hymns. I think that's pretty true for people of this time when you hear about it. They're like, it's record players and pianos and church music that gets you in. Mm-hmm. So he would play in a high school band under Carl McVicker, who had also instructed like other jazz legends like Errol Garner and Mary Lou Williams. Mm-hmm. He was in Pittsburgh at the time and he started uh, studying classical music at the Pittsburgh Music Institute, wrote a musical and played in a trio. And it is a horrible, horrible shame, but he really, really wanted to be a classical musician and he wanted to be a classical composer. And that was just not a thing that was done at the time. And that just is just a knife through me because think of all the music we would have for someone who wrote so many amazing pieces if the classical music world had been more open. Yeah. Think of of all the pieces we could be playing right now as almost, it would literally be like a hundred year anniversary for some of them Mm -hmm. if things weren't the way they were. Yeah. So he, he gets his first exposure to jazz music in a combo called the Mad Hatters. He used to play around Pittsburgh um, and he ends up transitioning into jazz and started writing for Buddy Malone's Pittsburgh Dance Band in 1937. He meets Duke Ellington also in the 1930s, and in 1938, he meets him in person. And so he showed the band leader his arrangement of one of Duke Ellington's pieces, and Ellington invited his band to come hear him, and when they come back through town, they start working together, and they work together, like I said, for three full decades. It is unfortunately not always a happy collaboration. Hmm. Strayhorn was super gifted, and to some degree, even though Ellington tend, tends to, um, like, acknowledge him, he doesn't always, like, make sure he's acknowledged outside of Duke Ellington's own acknowledgments of him. So, mm, gotcha. right, he doesn't always go with, the if the publicists leave off his name, he's not going to bat for Strayhorn. Right. This is a, a quote that I'm taking out. So, though Duke Ellington took credit for much of Strayhorn's work, he did not maliciously drown out his partner. Ellington would make jokes on stage like, Strayhorn does a lot of work, but I get to take the bows. On the other hand, Ellington did not oppose his publicist, frequently crediting him without any mention of Strayhorn. And despite the latter's attempts to hide his dissatisfaction, Strayhorn revealed, at least to his friends, a deepening wail of unease about his lack of public recognition as Ellington's prominence grew. Hmm. And that's a shame. And I, I don't necessarily think, once again, that Duke Ellington is being malicious about it. There are plenty of people who, even now, 
there are plenty of times when you look at things and it's funny to realize that a lot of people don't know that certain musicians don't write their own music. Right. And that's not like, that's not a knock on those musicians. I, a lot of people are just unaware that like songwriting and performing are two different careers that sometimes yep. are combined. Mm -hmm. um, and not only that, like Ellington is credited on a lot of pieces that it's uncertain if he actually worked on. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to say, especially with jazz, where there's improvisational work in there too. Yeah. So, so Strayhorn actually moved in with Ellington and Ellington's sister and son. Uh, Mercer Ellington. And through Mercer Ellington, Strayhorn would meet his first partner, African-American musician Aaron Bridgers, who he lived with until Bridgers moved to Paris in 1947. Aww. Which I think is kind of fun that he met uh, his first partner like through the family. Yeah. But uh, Strayhorn was a very openly gay musician. It was not a secret. And he was also very active in the civil rights movement. He was a committed mm -hmm. friend of Martin Luther King Jr. And he arranged and conducted the King Fit the Battle of Alabama for Ellington Orchestra in 1963, and a historical review called My People, which was dedicated to King. He left a huge impression on people, and he's actually really known for his influence on Lena Horne, who he helped, like, he, he used his classical singing and his classical technique to help improve her uh, performance, which I thought was kind of a neat thing to learn. But also, she considered him the love of her life. Wow. Yeah. I, he did not feel the same for very obvious reasons. <laughs> but they were very, very close. I think of them in the same way I think of uh, Freddie Mercury and... Oh, Montserrat. Montserrat. Uh, it's kind of like that, you yeah. know? You have, you have people in your besties. life who are, who are soulmates in platonic ways. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. In the 1950s, he did eventually leave Ellington to pursue his own career, uh, unfortunately, in the 1960s, he did he contracted esophageal cancer and passed away. Oh, wow. But I think he's such a fascinating figure and so important to jazz and to Duke Ellington's whole career that it's fascinating that I've never heard his name. And especially as an openly gay man during this time, because a lot of times there are people who, for good reason, do not come out. And so to know that he was openly gay and living with partners and... Uh, I just think I think it, what a what an interesting and cool person, especially since arranging, I think, is also an undercredited career in general. The importance of being able to put music into a form that works with everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it was years before it wasn't until I met musical theater composers or even people who worked on film that I realized that there are composers and then there are orchestrators and arrangers who actually make the piece work for whatever ensemble. Yeah, very collaborative. So that's pretty neat. The point of that is to say that, like, what an amazing career um, and a person who deserves to be recognized and credited appropriately. And there is a, a documentary about his life. Billy Strayhorn, Lush Life. Ooh. I um, mean, you can watch it on PBS. I think that's very, it's very, very cool. Actually, that's really well rated. <laughs> that's also just a great title. Ooh. Yeah. And it's an hour With and a half. The, the perfect length for a documentary. <laughs> Love it. Ooh. That's awesome. There's so many... Um really great well just things in general on pbs but there's so many great documentaries on uh, musicians that i feel like unless you're familiar with a musician you wouldn't know to even look up a documentary you know pbs also has great filmed performances they're like masterpiece theater i don't think masterpiece mm -hmm. theater is the correct name but they have tons of great classical and musical theater performances that are recorded so it's definitely worth just like getting the subscription for a month and watching a bunch yeah connor and i've watched some really good stuff on there it's pretty neat yeah what a treat so i learned a little bit more about um somebody who you know was a little bit similar um 
an openly gay man uh, in active in the 1940s to the 1990s, which is pretty crazy. Um, so I'm bringing to you Lou Harrison, who was an American composer born in Portland, Oregon in 1917, and he has a really kickin' style. He's mostly known for kind of an experimental compositional style, very percussive, very interested in global music traditions. And like I said, his music is pretty kickin'. So um, even though he was born and raised in Portland- Nothing but bops. Nothing but bops, you know it. I, I don't know. I think that world music is really fascinating. I think that when we kind of look at just the Western classical traditions, you know, there's so many different types of styles. There's so many different types of instruments, um, instrumentations, uses of instruments that we use in Western classical style. So I, I, I always feel extra drawn to people who kind of look outside the Western box, um, which is definitely Lou Harrison. So even though he was born and raised in Oregon, his family um, moved over like around when he was nine to San Francisco. And this really kind of broadened that interest in different musical influences because, you know, in San Francisco, you could hear Cantonese opera. You have, you know, lots of people who are really into early music, Gregorian chant. Um, there's a huge population of Spanish, Mexican, Native American music. And then obviously you have big scenes in jazz and classical music and at this point as a young musician Lou Harrison was just a total sponge and thanks to the San Francisco Public Library which we love our public libraries um, that one has a really great music section so he had really easy and free access to take a ton of scores home with him to study I love that so he studied things like yeah so he's a little plug for our uh, <laughs> public libraries um, but, you know, he studied jazz, piano, um, Gregorian chant. He had a really huge love for early music um, and then started actually conducting when he was in high school. Something that I think also kind of helped feed the fire was he took Henry Cowell's course on the music of the world's people and actually ended up studying counterpoint and composition with Cowell. And so, you know, he from an early age really had a very eclectic and robust style and kind of like you were talking about with your person like Lou Harrison was working with John Cage he um, was a composition pupil of Schoenberg like all of Wild. these like yeah and you're like wait what like <laughs> why do we not hear him all the time but he and John Cage uh, both really you know focused on percussion dominated music and both together would go to like junkyards or like an automobile import shop and kind of just play around with the different pitched ringing sounds of different um like just hitting different things um and together they discovered uh what they refer to as the wonderful pitched ringing sound produced by brake drums so it's just crazy um but he had like a like i said a love for renaissance and earlier music he liked to incorporate a lot of kind of dance rhythms and movements within his works and so just a really cool style lou harrison and is he... absolutely like the hipster before it was cool yeah where he was like yeah i see what you're doing over here but i grew up in portland and san francisco yes. and so i have been exposed but in like the coolest of ways and the most genuine of ways exactly and so you know we love a west coast west coast guy i and do so uh <laughs> but it's kind of funny though because um, 
you know, he ended up moving to New York in 1943. And um, like any true West Coast person, you know, has like a mental crisis moving away. (laughs) Um, New York does that to people. Yeah. Well, New York especially. I mean, it's just so different. I mean, nothing bad against New York, but it's really, it's just a completely different lifestyle, change of pace. So he moves um, to New York in 1943, um, and he's working as a musician and writer. And it's a pretty tough place, even though he's having a hard time making a living. Like, he's still doing a lot. Um, He was writing music reviews for the Herald Tribune, but he ends up developing a stomach ulcer, and then, like, it really kind of goes down. But during this period, he actually meets uh, Charles Ives, which, like, what the heck? Oh, wild. Yeah. Um, And he assisted him in editing and preparing for Ives' live performance of the Third Symphony. Um, And Harrison actually conducted it at the premiere. Um, And what's very sweet is, you know, Ives at this time was um, much older. And since Harrison was kind of having a hard time living and surviving in New York, Ives actually gave... Harrison half the money when that third symphony won a Pulitzer Prize in music. Wow. So then kind of, you know, he's in a little bit of better of a better financial position, but he still is like really having a hard time. Even in 1947, he's got a nervous breakdown that actually causes him to change his compositional style, which is kind of cool. He just does a lot of different things with the orchestra and I think it's also kind of cool he's largely like a chamber music jazz like modern composition type composer he wrote some stuff for like some concertos and stuff for keyboard music he has like a couple vocal pieces that I'm really interested in diving into because um, I'm interested to see how percussive they are for voice but um, you know he was an openly gay man And he really dedicated himself, especially like later in life, to writing things that specifically had to do with, you know, the experience of being a gay person at that time. And one of his like magnum opuses, so to speak, is his opera, Young Caesar, which um, if you were like living in L.A. um, around 2018, L.A. Opera actually put it on in like one of their in partnership with uh, with some other organizations. But um, it's pretty much all about you know Caesar and his love for another man and it's an openly gay theme um, openly gay love interest and love story and um, it's kind of sad because I think that the original premiere was supposed to be in Pasadena back in 1971 and the patrons basically withdrew their support in protest of the openly gay story Um, which is really, really just unfortunate. And then LA Opera, in collaboration with some other ensembles, put it together in 2018. And the nice thing is that you can actually go and listen to it because they recorded an album. So you can listen to it like on Apple Music or Spotify. It's Young Caesar by Lou Harrison. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I think it's important for people to remember that like during the time where Harrison was growing up, you could go to prison for being gay and for having Mm -hmm. gay sex. And like, he was really good friends with Henry Cowell, who's another composer um, who you probably know. And he he visited Henry Cowell and advocated for his release from prison for being gay. You could lose all of your work because we're heading into the era of McCarthyism here where being gay was seen as a a communist threat. Mm -hmm. So being openly gay in these scenarios that we're talking about is immensely brave. But also, uh, you know, he mentions in his time in New York that, like, not being able to be open and, like, having so many homophobic colleagues 
um, it takes a toll on you. That's profoundly relevant to today because a lot of times um, in the discussions we're having, this is very American. So um, if you're one of our listeners from abroad, I'm talking from the perspective of what's happening here and now, um, especially surrounding Florida and some other states. But there's a lot of talk about how um, people in the queer community are more prone to mental illness and health issues. And it's, it's a, a lot of conflation of cause and effect because from one side you'll hear that like it's because being queer is a mental illness when I think much more the reality is that trying to live honestly in a world that does not accept the fact that you are a harmless person trying to live your life is more so the problem. Dealing with the fact that something that is just an inherent part of your being is, is an affront to people is more the stakes of the matter. And so I, I find his story to be immensely relevant. Yeah. And going back to Young Caesar, I think the other reason that this work is really important to Harrison's life is he made edits and continued to compose like arias for it leading up to his death in 2003. So it those later arias that were added really reflect his late musical style, which is really cool because that's not always the case in opera um, where you have like you know the continuation through a various evolution of styles and so it's pretty much just a summation of his style and music and his work and his composition so it's pretty nice to be able to kind of get a whole picture of who he was as a musician in one work yeah but i think that's kind of true of people who compose over their lifetime you know we always try to like distill it down and we have like oh these are like the heights of their work but you know composition like living is it's a living breathing thing it's a it's an autobiographical reality and then our final person uh is someone you've probably heard of in passing actually um angela morley who is an english composer and arranger so angela morley Mm -hmm. is primarily known for her work in film so she's actually won three emmy awards for her work in music arranging it was in the category of outstanding music direction it was for christmas in washington and two television specials starring julie andrews what a dream oh morley has also received eight emmy nominations for composing music for television series such as dynasty in dallas and if you don't know what those are those are like very famous old soap operas love it i think so i think dallas might still be running question mark i'm not into soap operas but somebody (laughs) out there knows she was also twice nominated for an academy award for best original song score first of which is for the little prince where she was nominated with uh learner low and gamley um and the second was for the slipper in the rose which is like a take on a cinderella story Hmm. which she shared with richard m sherman and robert b sherman but Very importantly, she is also the first openly transgender person to be nominated for an Academy Award. This really takes me back to Wendy Carlos and when we talked about Switched on Bach, which is the reality that, like, Wendy Carlos transitioned in the 1970s, and actually so did Angela Morley. I think that's kind of fascinating because we never talk about it, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I think people should be known for their accomplishments and everything, but there's something to be said for the fact that, like, there are many works that you've heard by trans composers who you just don't realize are trans. Yeah. Because it's a foregone conclusion. They they transitioned 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, so, Angela Morley starts off with, like, learning from her father who plays the ukulele. And she sits down on the floor while he tunes it and everything. And she's inspired to take on music. So she starts playing, like I said, piano, violin, accordion, 
and then se settles on primarily clarinet and alto sax as her primary instruments, which is kind of cool to me because normally I consider yeah. piano to usually be the primary instrument or sometimes percussion for uh, composers. It's very rare that I see a lot of woodwind representation as primary. So I think that's yeah, no. cool. That's super sick. She is mostly self-taught. And like I said, just like my, uh, just like Strayhorn, she leaves school at 15 to join a traveling band, right? Um, and by the time she's 17, she in, she joins uh, a group called Geraldo's Band, which used to play frequently, like twice a week for the BBC. Um, and she begins arranging pieces for all of these groups. So these are kind of like dance bands that you would have heard during the time of World War II. And she is now consistently arranging music for them, which is what's going to kick off her career. So now that she's in London, she's playing with the BBC. She starts studying harmony and musical composition in London um, with British Hungarian composer. And I'm, this is Hungarian, forgive me. <laughs> uh, Matthias Seiber and conducting with German conductor uh, Walter Gare. Um, Morley's early work is also uh, influenced by Robert Farnan and Bill Finnegan. And you'll see her compared to them a lot because they were the other big composer arrangers during that time. Okay. Pre-transition, she is really known for her work with her work basically in popular music. She was a very popular collaborator with Shirley Bassey, uh, including the Banana Boat song and As I Love You. Oh my gosh. <laughs> which I thought was really cool. But that like starts to kick off her career. She she helps arrange Eurovision songs. Um, she's kind of sort of working in film at the time. She's working in television, arranging stuff. Like once you work for the BBC, you're kind of always just around. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then she also kind of works in classical music. So she does arrangements of Deep River, Handles Largo, Boxiezu, Joy of Man's Desiring, um, Rachmaninoff's vocalese. So all of these pieces. So you would see her credited under a bunch of stuff. But like I said, flying largely under the radar at this time, as a lot of composer arrangers do. Mm -hmm. So then in like around 1970, uh, up until 1972, she begins her transition. Um, and she kind of pulls away from publicly working because being publicly there while you transition especially during the 70s back when it was you know there was a lot less information available pe to people who were looking to transition you know she pulls away from public life um and she actually she studies clarinet chamber music for 18 months which is crazy <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine like pulling away from composition being like i am just clarinet yeah Especially after being able to do so many different genres and having so many different projects going on to like hyper focus on one thing is, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So in 1972, she comes back and she's working under the name Angela Morley and she's kind of nervous. She doesn't really want to take on television um, stuff. And it's kind of once again, it takes me back to Wendy Carlos, who right after she transitioned would actually wear fa facial hair and stuff and still present as a man when going on television. Mm. So she had to be uh, one of her first projects upon her return to public life was as an orchestrator for Jesus Christ Superstar, which I think is incredible. Oh, hell yes. How cool is that? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was like, that's the perfect place to come back, really. Yeah. So then she uh, immediately jumps back in and um, does orchestration and arranging and aids in the final composition for The the Little Prince, the 1974 film version of The Little Prince with Lerner and Lowe which gets her nominated for the Academy Award of Best Original Music, Original Score, and or Adaptation. And she does go to California for the award ceremony. 
which I think is fantastic. And then immediately turns around in 1976 and does The Slipper in the Rose, where she was again nominated um, and was present at the award ceremony. But the craziest one to me is that she then goes and works on... Uh, she then goes and works on Watership Down. And if you don't know what Watership Down is, it's like the most psychotic thing that was ever kind of sort of billed as like a children's book and movie. It is not. It is like a devastating condemnation of war hidden inside a story about rabbits. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have the time to take you through it. Just <laughs> Google it if you would like. It's real weird. But I think it's incredible that without really knowing what it was, she was like, I guess I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna do this. I'm going to write the score for this. And I have not watched the movie and I won't because I don't need to see a sad movie about rabbits. Um, <laughs> but now she moves out to L.A. Um, and throughout the 1980s, she's kind of working out there. And she writes music for, like I said, Dynasty, Dallas, Cagney and Lacey, Wonder Woman, incredible, and Falcon Crest. And she's working a lot for Warner Bros. Paramount Pictures, you know, the big movie houses, basically. Yeah. She then begins collaborating with, who would you run into a lot during the 70s and 80s and 90s? John Williams. He's everywhere. Oh, boy. So she arranges the Boston Pops Orchestra for, and like helps work on Star Wars, Superman, The Empire Strikes Back, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Hook, Home Alone, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Schindler's List. And she's largely uncredited for that, but she does do that work. She's also collaborated uh, with Andre Previn. Uh, Lionel Newman, Miklos Rocha, Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman. She's got, she's been nominated six times for Emmy Awards for composing. And like I said, won the three for music direction. Mm -hmm. But Man, yeah, stacked. Um, she used to lecture resume. at USC for film scoring. Her last credit was for the Disney film Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, <laughs> <laughs> where she worked as an additional orchestrator and composer of music. That's awesome. So the thing about her is like, first of all, an incredible life, like an incredibly full life. And this is one of those people who has done so much work, but tends to fall into those categories that we don't necessarily always formally recognize because they're working under or with people. Yeah. And also, you know, not necessarily a, a person who wanted to be in that spotlight in that capacity, who wanted to just live their life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another person who transitioned really early compared to a lot of people like she begins uh, transitioning in 1970 and like openly uh, presenting as a woman in 1972. Um, yeah. And I think it's really interesting because she actually marries her second wife. Her first wife passes away. Oh, no. And then she marries her second wife in 1970, right before she um, transitioned. And her wife uh, stays with her through transition and stayed with her until the end of her life in 2009. And they actually, um, she had uh, two kids with her first wife and everything. Um, but I, I think that's so lovely that like that I imagine was very difficult to like come into someone's life who's at, at the precipice of something huge like that, regardless yeah. of whether or not it's about gender or sexuality or e even just regular life transitions that we go through. Um, that's a huge thing to live through, especially if you don't consider yourself to be queer. Mm -hmm. And so Morley has stated that it was only because of her love and support that I was able to deal with the trauma and begin to think about crossing over that terrifying gender border. I think that's just so fantastic. That's awesome. Um, but, you know, counter to a lot of things, um, Morley also mentions that tons of people that she worked with before her transition continued to work with her after her transition. And I think that's Yay. worth noting. Um, while working on The Goon Show, she made the acquaintance of Peter Sellers and would share fond memories of him. Peter Sellers is a very famous actor. Um, and Herbert W. Spencer, who she worked with 
um, and was her friend through her entire life. Um, and there was there was one more person I'm not going to find the name of, but I, I highlight Angela Morley, A, because I think probably some of you have come across her music probably multiple times in your life. If you've <laughs> listened, if you've listened to John Williams, if you've seen any of these older f films, if you've watched any old specials with uh, Julie Andrews in them, you've come across her work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just, oh, Max Geldre, which was the, the other person who was a, a big BBC um, comedy program. But uh I, I think it's important for you to know that like music, classical jazz, uh, film, television has always been queer. And it is in fact where many people find their home. And yeah. we owe it to the history of classical music and to the history of music itself as an expressive medium and as a place for people to share the joyful and the difficult and the painful um, to always continue to highlight the people in our community who have done incredible work, especially the people who fly under the radar, especially the people who you don't even realize that you know. Because there are many people who would like to tell you that um, people being lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, androgynous, uh, asexual, that all of this is brand new, that none of this used to exist, that nobody used to be this way. We have always been here. And we have always been artists. <laughs> <laughs> That's our, our big secret is we have always been making art about that. And it's important to acknowledge that history as we move forward and to uh, pay homage to the many, many queer creators who have uh, inspired and created. And have often been the backbone, you know, the support system to, you know, their heterosexual and cis counterpoints. Exactly. Who, who have often been overlooked for a person who is more palatable to the public eye yeah so we hope you enjoyed this pride season we hope that you enjoyed this pride episode and learned a little bit about some really really kicking and cool musicians um we'll be back next week like we said with some opera news so stay tuned both uh things happening in the opera world and things happening with jesse and i so we uh love you guys you can Connect with us on Discord or our Instagram, which is our main hub at Opera Offstage, and we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.